0: Good morning everyone, it's good to see all of you here today. Let's go to God in prayer as we ask Him to help us to understand His Word today, and to help me as I preach it to you. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that we may put aside all our worries, our distractions, all things which stop us from focusing on your Word. We pray for the Holy Spirit to be working mightily in our hearts, so that as we come before your Word again, we may be humbled by it, and that we may seek to truly understand it and to nourish our hearts through it. And we pray for all these things, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now it's been said that it's not how you start that is important, but how you finish. Now I think this is a very common axiom, uh, this truth that everybody knows, that it is not starting well that really matters, but finishing well. And I think that uh, nowhere is this more important than in the reality of our Christian walk, our spiritual life. Because actually when you think about it, even if I start a marathon well, and I fail to finish, what have I really finished? What have I really lost? I just failed to finish the marathon and I can always run the next one a few months down the road. I may start my studies well and if I fail to finish, I can always still retake my exams or become a mature-age student. But obviously to all of you who are students, that's what I'm encouraging you to do in case the parents come after me. Right? You may start your career and you may fail in that career but you can always do another job. You may start a business and so you may go bankrupt but again, that's what bankruptcy is for so you can start again. But as we look through the whole book of Hebrews, it says that the Christian walk or the Christian race, there is no second chances, there is no do-over, there is no mulligan, there is no repeat. In chapter 1, to chapter 10, it speaks of the great privileges that we as Christians have. That Jesus Christ has given us everything and we lack nothing. He is our perfect sacrifice. He is our perfect high priest. He has brought us into uh, a perfect relationship with God. We have forgiveness today and the heavenly city tomorrow. In fact, chapter 9, verse 26, it says that Jesus is the culmination and the high point of all ages in history. But in chapter 10, it went on to warn us about the danger of losing this wonderful gift that we have received. In chapter 10, it spoke of how if we lost Jesus after we have received Him, there is no sacrifice for sins left. There is only judgment, there is only the raging fire of God's wrath and the terror of falling into the hands of a living God. Now, the problem was that as we have been looking at the book Hebrews, uh, the danger of falling away and dropping out of the Christian race was a very real one. So if you turn back in me to chapter 10, verse 32, the problem was that the Hebrew Christians were exposed to great suffering, of great persecution and hardship. In verse 32 of chapter 10, it says, Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you had endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution, at other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had a better and lasting possession. So do not throw away your confidence, it will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God you will receive what He has promised. So today in chapter 12 it deals with those issues, how are we and how they, the Hebrew Christians, to persevere to the very end, in the face of hardship, suffering, great cost. Well, today as we go to chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews puts this question to the test and gives us a few really important words of advice. He says in verse 1 of chapter 12, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. So the first thing that the writer of Hebrews says, the idea of perseverance and endurance is expressed in the imagery of a race. And and in the ancient world, the idea of a race was a very common one, right? I mean, they had the Olympic Games and things. Now, when we visualize the Christian faith as a race, as an athletic race, then what what brings to mind what are the things that come to our aid to finish this race? Well, the first thing he says is, we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Now, this would be very familiar to someone who is an athlete. So, uh, I know that uh, you know the, the, the big stadium in Singapore used to be the Kalang Stadium, and now the Kalang Stadium has been replaced by the Sports Hub, right? Yep. And the Sports Hub will be opened in June. And, uh, okay, I'm, I'm, not, I'm a terrible athlete. I was really lousy at everything I did on the track and field. But I do remember that when you run in the stadium, okay, I mean, I've, I've been to the stadiums before. The first thing that you notice as an athlete when you walk through the door is the crowd, right? The huge crowd of people that are surrounding you. So imagine you're an athlete, you're representing Singapore or something, you walk into the sports hub, there are 55,000 people there. And those 55,000 people there would be a great encouragement to you as, you as you run a normal race. But even more so in a Christian race, right, we are gathered, it says there, by a great cloud of witnesses. Now this crowd of witnesses are not your ad- ad- ordinary spectators. Okay? You know, Usually if you go run in the sports hub, I suppose the sports hub will just be filled with people who are usually couch potatoes who have never run. A race in their life, right? But here, when we run the Christian race, the author of Hebrews says, Imagine the people, the multitude of people in heaven, this great cloud of witnesses who are witnessing you as you run your race. And what makes them great is not just a multitude upon multitude of people who are looking down at you from heaven. What makes them great is because they are witnesses, they are witnesses of them running their own race. They are not spectators, right? They are witnesses of people who have actually run the race. So it's just like, you know, you're running in the stadium, the sports hub, and you're running a really long race, and you feel really tired, you feel really uh, disheartened, you want to give up, you're discouraged. But then you look up at all the spectators, and you see people, and every one of those spectators has finished the race that you're running in. And that's, a, that's supposed to be a source of encouragement for us, because it says there, that this is a great cloud of witnesses. They are witnessing to their ability to run the race of faith. You see, in chapter 11, verse 39 to 40, right? It says, these witnesses, who were they? In verse 39, they were those who were all commended for their faith. Yet none of them had received what was promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. See, this great cloud of witnesses who finish the race, they are waiting for us to finish so that together with us, they can be perfected in Jesus Christ and go to heaven. So, when we think of our race and we feel tired and we think of the obstacles and difficulties and persecutions, we look up and we think of people like Abraham. We think of people like Moses. We think of people who endure difficulty and persevere to the very end and the end were rewarded by God. And as we think of those people like Abraham, who was an alien and stranger in the land, people like Moses, who chose to turn away from the pleasures and the status of the Egyptian kingship and to be a slave instead, we say to ourselves, well, look, if these people can do it. Why can't we? If all these people can do it, all through the Old Testament, who persevered and kept their faith, why can't I? Why can't I persevere in faith? These people are an example for us that inspire us to keep going on in our faith because any difficulty that we have faced, they have faced an even worse, even to the death. So that's the first thing, the first thing that should encourage us to persevere to the very end, to run the race well to the end because we have a great cloud of witnesses in heaven watching us and these people have finished the race and they are waiting for us to finish our race to be together with them. They are an example, an encouragement, an inspiration for us. But then the writer of Hebrews then goes on to say, Let us throw off <coughs> everything that hinders and the sin <coughs> sorry that so easily entangles. Now, I think that the, the everything here that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles are... Separate things, they are sort of related but they are slightly different. So let's say you are, again back to the sports hub, Okay, you go into the stadium and you are running a long race. Uh, what are you dressed in? Well, I guess in Singapore it is very hot so you don't really dress in much more different but I guess you know when you watch things on TV, you see people come in, they are wearing their track suits, they are wearing their like headphones and they got their towels and everything around them, right? and then they're carrying their running shoes or whatever and they've got other shoes with then they've got gazillion things to them. Now imagine if you're running a long race, would you take off your tracksuit? I think you would, right? I mean, I don't see people running marathons in their tracksuits. Uh, would you throw off your towel? Yes, you throw off your towel. I mean, you don't run around with your towel around your neck like you came out of the shower. Because the whole idea here when it says, throw off everything that hinders, literally is the idea of things which add extra weight. Things that encumber you, things that burden you. And there are things which really, in a Christian life, will burden us and hinder us, and stop us from running the race well to the very end. And these things do not necessarily have to be sins. That's why it says everything, everything that hinders you. I remember when I uh, first became a Christian, uh, I used to play a lot of tennis. So on tennis, uh, in Sun- we used to play the league on Sunday morning. Okay, so actually sports you now is very unfortunate because they play a lot of stuff on Sunday morning. So I used to play this league tennis thing on Sunday morning and we were supposed to finish at about 10 o'clock uh, every day, la. I mean every Sunday. Obviously, you know, some games take longer than others. So you either purposely lose very fast or you win very fast. But anyway, so, you know, if you have a normal game and the game goes longer 10 o'clock, you can't stop, isn't it? So there were times where I used to go to church late. I used to go to, maybe like, go to church really sweaty. Uh, Come to church half, you know, when it's half happening. So the pastor there actually spoke to me one day, he (coughs) said, Look, you have to choose between your tennis and church. Because you can't keep going on like this. You can't keep playing the league tennis on Sunday morning and still expect to come to church and and actually benefit from it in fellowship and and hearing uh, the sermon and the teaching. And in the end, I I realized that was true because the tennis, even though it was not a sin, was a burden, an extra weight on my Christian life. Uh, It can be so many things, isn't it? Uh, I've seen so many people over my life, it could be things which stop us from going to Bible study. It's the extra class, the dance class, or the Chinese class, or the MBA class, which stops us from going to Bible study. It could be uh, the scuba diving, or the triathlon, or the marathon, which stops us going to church and having fellowship on Sunday. It could be uh, watching TV, Korean drama, and, and, and things like that over and over, so you have no time to read a Bible. I remember challenging one person uh, before, because this person always used to go on holiday all the time on the weekends. So every long weekend, this person will go on holiday. I remember saying to this person, look, you know, you count all the long weekend holidays you have, plus all the normal holidays you have, you're missing like one-fifth of church every year. And I said, that's not going to help you in your Christian walk. It's going to be a burden to you, and you're not going to be able to finish well. And even as parents, sometimes we burden our kids, right? Because we... We put sports activities or extra classes or whatever so that they consistently miss Sunday school and miss church. So it says here, throw off all these hindrances, throw them off this extra weight to make sure that you can run to the very end. He goes on also to say that the runner, the Christian runner, is to also throw off the sin that so easily entangles. Now, the sin here, I I believe, is not the the sin of apostasy, because that wouldn't be a sin that entangles, that would be a sin which disqualifies you, but it's just a general sin. And I think what's in view here is just the idea of a toleration or the acceptance of some sin in your life. Instead of vigorously fighting this sin and resisting this sin and walking in step with the Holy Spirit to battle sin, we put our arms around this sin We treat it like a buddy and we wear it comfortably like a well-worn t-shirt. And over time this sin grows and grows so that it it, it entangles you, I guess Spider-Man's web or something, and trips you up so you can't finish the Christian race. Now I think that's the problem with some Christians, that we underestimate the effect of tolerated sin in our life on our Christian walk. I know of uh, more than one person who has struggled with uh, pornography, uh, it was unconfessed, and it was unaddressed, and it wasn't uh, fought off. And I remember talking to them many years later, when this, these people were falling away as Christians, and it actually has a much greater effect than just that amount of time in front of the computer. right? Because this unaddressed sin caused them to not have close fellowship with other Christians it made them feel reluctant to go to church on Sundays because they didn't feel that they were right with God. It meant that they couldn't read their Bibles well. And as a result, they were entangled, they stumbled, they tripped, and they didn't finish the Christian race. There are some other people that I know uh, who struggle with uh, spiritual pride or just pride in general. And as this pride grows and grows, uh, I, I'm not thinking anybody here, but I, I, That this person that I'm, I'm thinking of became unteachable because they were really proud of themselves and they didn't want to listen to instruction from anybody else. They didn't want to be rebuked or corrected by anybody else. And as a result, even today I, I, I'm thinking of this person, I, I don't know that this person goes to church anymore because they were not willing to deal with their, 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 their sin. Greed can be another thing. So I always remember this... Uh, Example of how, at one stage in my life, I organized this big boys' brigade and girls' brigade carnival in my previous church. And for the carnival, we organized all these silly races, like, you know, you put the egg in the spoon, run across, the, you know, table tennis, or your ball in your head or something, all these funny things. Like. So anyway, somebody had this idea of the three-legged race, right? You know, the three-legged race where you have two people, then you tie their legs together, and then you make them run across the field, and then it looks very funny, they all fall down, right? But you see, you can't run a long race with a three-legged race. It's just not possible, right? Because you're, you're so burdened by this other person. But you see, when sin grows and grows and grows, it's like running your Christian race like a three-legged race. I remember reading this book about how sin, when it grows, right, it's almost like this, this, this big thing enslaved and stuck onto the side of your body which hampers you. And that's what Sin which is unaddressed will do to your Christian race. It will stumble you, it will hinder you, and you will be unable to finish well, or not finish at all. In verse 2, so the first thing was, remember that you're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, and the second thing is to throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And I think the third thing is, it says in verse 2, to fix our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Right? Now, Jesus is not equal footing. He's not on par with the cloud of witnesses watching down from us in heaven. right? I mean, Jesus is like a completely different category of motivation for us as Christians. When we fix our eyes on Jesus, He is not, just not as an example for us. He is the, it says there, pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. Now this idea of pioneer uh, is the idea of, uh, in the old NIV was the Virgin, the author of our faith, or the, the source or the founder of our faith. See, Jesus is the source of our, and founder of our faith because how do we come to faith? Through the preaching and the hearing of the good news of Jesus Christ. He is the, the author of our faith, so to speak. But it's just not hearing of Jesus which leads to our faith, his death and resurrection actually open the way forward for us to God through faith. So he is the author of faith, isn't it? Because without Jesus, we would not come to faith and we would not have any result of our faith in actually coming to God. But more than that, it says there that he's not just the pioneer of our faith, <coughs> he's also the perfecter of our faith. Now if you look up the Dictionary, the, the the language dictionary, literally is that he is the completer or the finisher of our faith, the one who makes possible the successful completion of something. Now, how does Jesus complete or perfect our faith? Well, it says there in verse two that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now He perfects our faith because when He died He gave a perfect sacrifice for us and now He's finished His work and He's sitting down beside God's right hand. He has brought the ultimate goal of faith which is a perfect relationship with God. That's how He perfects our faith because He brings our faith to completion by allowing us to reach the goal of our faith which is a perfect relationship with God. See, that's what it said in chapter 10, verse 19, which is up here on the slide. Right? It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is, His body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. See, Jesus has opened the way from us, and we can come all the way into the presence of God, where Jesus now sits at God's right hand. He perfects our faith, because He brings it to completion. So fixing our eyes on Jesus is a, is a different thing qualitatively from looking at the cloud of witnesses in heaven. Because Jesus actually has started our faith, He completes our faith. But I think it's even more than that, actually, because if you look at the ideas in Hebrew, He actually helps us in our faith journey, even as we live today. In Hebrew chapter 4, it says this, I think we didn't kind of uh, expand on it, but the idea is captured here, so we should look at it. It says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess." Since we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and grace and find grace to help us help us in our time of need. You see, Jesus helps us in our faith, because as we struggle in faith, Jesus is alongside with us, actually helping us grow through our difficulty. He doesn't just sort of sit back from heaven and watch us in a far, far non-involved way. He's actually working together with us to strengthen us in our faith. In our time of need, He provides us mercy and grace. So we must fix our eyes on Jesus, because He is the one who will help us through the difficult times as we persevere as a Christian. Now the passage then goes on, uh, actually it doesn't go on, I want to go back for a second, where it says this interesting thing. It says, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, right, at the end of verse 1. Now as we look at the, this section, this last sentence in chapter, uh, in chapter 12 verse 1, uh, it says that the characteristic of the Christian race is endurance and perseverance. The characteristic of the Christian race is not speed. Right? We, we, the Christian race is not about uh, the fastest person to become a theological lecturer or a pastor or something right. That, that's not the goal or the aim of the Christian life. The goal of Christian life is endurance, perseverance. And this is there this thing called the race marked out for us. Right? Look at it. Let's run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us. Now, in the ancient world, people were very familiar with this idea of the race that is marked out for us. Uh, see, when, you, when we have uh, the Olympic Games or the sea games or something like that, there's always the master of the games, right? The guy who's in charge of everything or the woman who's in charge of everything. And they will mark out the race for the athletes. And when the master of the games marks out the race for the athletes, let's say he's going, marking out a marathon, he will determine the, the way the athletes run, right? You know, where's the hill, where's the rocky ground, where's the smooth ground, where are the obstacles, and they have to follow this route, which is marked out by the master of the games. Now, when you look at the Christian race, it says to us then that this race that we are running is marked out for us by God. God has marked out this race that we are to run. So what is this race that God has marked out for us? What what are its characteristics? Well, the characteristics are found in exactly the same race that Jesus Christ had to run in his own life. Because it says there in verse 3 to 4, consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. When you struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. See, our race is not our unique race. It is a race that has already been run by Jesus, it is a race that has already been run by all those people in chapter 11, all those Old Testament people. And the characteristic of those races is hardship, rejection, difficulty, persecution. This is why it says, consider Jesus, which is the hymn there, right, who endured such opposition from sinners. He endured the cross and he scorned its shame. So, Jesus ran this race, and that's a characteristic of the Christian race, then we should be expected to follow the same route. That's what Jesus said when he spoke to his disciples in Matthew and John. So, you can see it up here. So, Jesus said to his disciples, All men who will hate you because of me, but he who stands firm to the end will be saved. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it will love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember the words I spoke to you, No servant is greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours too. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. See, one of the problems with not being able to finish the race, and one of the problems with the Hebrew Christians, is that they did not understand the way the world is. They did not have the right perspective on the world, they did not have the right world view, so to speak. Because they didn't recognize that actually the Christian race takes place in the sphere of the world, which is actually full of sin, influenced by sin, and is opposed to God's people. See, that's why it says in verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Now, when he says in verse 4, in your struggle against sin, he's not talking about struggling against my own sin, my selfishness, my lust, my greed. He's talking about in the struggle against the sin of the world in which we all live in. See, Jesus lived in that world. The Old Testament Christians lived in that world. No, Old Testament Christians. Old Testament believers lived in that world. And we live in that world. We live in a world of sin, which is opposed to God, which was opposed to Abraham, opposed to Moses, opposed to Jesus, and as a result also, will be opposed to us. So therefore, when we run this route that God has marked out for us, we should not be surprised or shocked when we experience persecution or hardship. See, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. I, I, you know, I have sort of uh, uh, remember stories about how when people um, are professional athletes, right? And they run the marathon... Uh, You you, you often see them running or walking the route before they run. I mean, if you are a really good athlete, you just don't turn up on the day itself and just say, okay, I'm ready to go, right? No, you don't, you know where the hills are, you know where the flat sections are, you know where the, the, the windy sections are, you know where the easier sections are, so that when you are running along that route, you can prepare yourself and you know, okay, so I'm at the hill now. Okay, I've got to make sure that I, I don't kill myself on this hill so that I can keep going. Well, that's the same thing. God is saying the Christian route that He's marked out for us is marked out in such a way where we will experience difficulty, hardship, and persecution. And because this is the route in which God has marked out for us and that Jesus has run and all the other Old Testament believers has run, we cannot opt ourselves out of the route. but We cannot sort of like run the route. You know, imagine you're running the marathon, right? And you're running, ah, very tiring, very tiring. I don't think I like this hill very much. Okay, I think I'll take a short detour over the flat part and avoid the hill. Because once you do that, you disqualify yourself. You're no longer following the route that has been marked out for you. And that's exactly the same for the Christian life. See, when God has marked out the route for us which involves hardship, persecution, opposition, difficulty, it's not for us to say, well, I don't like this route that God made, I'm going to make my own route. This is the route that God has made for us. Now, as we look at the rest of the passage, if we suffer persecution, opposition from a world of sin, and our struggle against sin, it's not as if God is not controlling control of the situation. It's not as if the sinners have won and become more powerful than God. Because again, who marks out this race for us? It is God who marks out this race. I think it's very important for us to see that as difficult as it is to accept sometimes, God is the one who sends us this hardship, this persecution, this difficulty. In verse 5 it says, And have you completely forgotten... This word of encouragement which addresses you as a father addresses his son. It says, My son, do not, make, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastens anyone he accepts as his son. And your hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate. Not true sons or daughters at all. Now, this word here, discipline, is the reason why God has brought this suffering on us as Christians, this persecution. The running of the hill, the making of life difficult, it's not so that you know God wants to sit up there and say, oh yeah, you know. This is all for fun, but it's actually for our discipline. Now, discipline here is not a negative thing. Okay? You know, sometimes we think of discipline as a very negative thing. You know? Who likes discipline? Discipline here is actually the idea of training or instruction or teaching so that people would, I mean, according to one definition which I think is really helpful, teaching or training or instruction in order to develop a certain character or a certain lifestyle or habits of behavior. Because that's what discipline is all about, right? So, I don't want my son to eat ice cream all the time, then I discipline my son in such a way so that they they change their habits of behavior and their thinking. Now, it says here very clearly that everyone will experience this discipline. And this discipline is actually for our good and we are to trust God even in the very difficult times, it says in verse ten, or verse nine to uh, eleven. We've all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good, in order that we may share in His holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Now, I know that uh, all fathers seek to discipline, but sometimes they are mistaken in their discipline. They may not actually bring out the good that they want, or they may not actually discipline for good. But the principle here is God does what is good for our good all the time. He is perfectly wise. That's what it's saying there in verse 10. God disciplines us for our good, full stop, in order that we may share in His mercy. And as a result, because it comes from God, we should willingly accept God's wisdom. Now, I actually haven't asked for permission to use this illustration, but I won't use the, anybody's name. But <clears throat> it's just like someone was telling us this story before, about how he was trying to discipline his child not to eat ice cream. I don't know why I keep talking about ice cream today. Anyway, so, when he disciplined his son, his son told him back, Uh, instead of saying, yes, thank you very much, he said, you naughty, you naughty, right, for taking the ice cream away. Well, sometimes we can be tempted to feel like that against God, right? We feel like, oh, you know, God, you you, you bring all this hardship and difficulty on me, You, you naughty to me, you know, right? But that's not the case. See, God is perfectly wise and God is doing it for a purpose and it is for an eternal purpose. Later on it will produce a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained for it or by it. See, one temptation that we can have as Christians is to turn away from God's discipline and as a result not finish the race. You see, it's so easy for us to avoid this discipline as it was for the Hebrew Christians all the Hebrew Christians had to do was to go back to being Jews in a Judaistic way, in Judaism. And they would avoid all the hardship and discipline. And as a result, it says there that God will no longer treat them as true sons and daughters, but they will be illegitimate. For ourselves, we have the same challenge. We can avoid all sorts of suffering and hardship by not standing up for Jesus and our actions and our words in the way we live. I don't know about you, but there's always this great temptation that instead of willingly accepting the, the discipline and the hardship and persecution that God wants for us to have and the root that is marked out for us, we try to avoid it because we don't want to speak God's word or live God's way. Uh, I use this book for my daily Bible reading, and every day there's a quote, right? And I like the quote from May 8th. It said, it's not under the sharpest, but the longest trials that we are most in danger of fainting. And I thought, wow, that's exactly what Hebrews chapter 12 is talking about. You see, it's not the short trial that's the problem, it's the long trial. It's where year after year after year after year, decade after decade as a Christian, the suffering and hardship for being a Christian, then the temptation becomes stronger and stronger to faint and to give up and not to persevere through that hardship and still be faithful to God in your actions and your words. See, when I look back at my own life, uh, I don't don't think I've suffered very much at all, but I I remember when I... uh, I wanted to go to theological college. Uh, I was uh, disowned by my, uh, by my dad for quite a long time. And I thought, okay, well, once that's over, I don't have to struggle with hardship anymore. But actually, I realized that the hardship and struggles for being a Christian never really end. That you will always have to face hardship and struggle by standing up for being a Christian. But that's something that we have to continue to do, even if... We are 80 years old, 70 years old, whatever, and it's hard, hard, hard. This is God's will for you for your good. And at the end of it, it will produce a harvest of righteousness and peace. And there are people who've all done it, and they're all looking down from heaven, and they've finished the race, and if they can do it, you can do it too. I remember, as a last uh, illustration, there's this guy called Ken Hughes, and I read his book, about how when he was very young, he pastored this church, he's a very famous pastor in America, called, you can look him up, Some Ken Hughes, and he said one of his early churches, he, he ministered in this church for many, many years, but for one, some reason or other, he couldn't get the church uh, to grow uh, evangelistically or spiritual maturity among the people. And he was very, very discouraged and very, very uh, disheartened. In fact, uh, when you read his book, he was thinking of quitting the ministry. Anyway, so he left and he went to some other churches and he worked. But many years later, he came back to this church again. He was shocked and when he found out that many people in the church had actually fallen away in Christ. They had failed to finish the race totally. What had happened was he had learned that uh, even during his time as a pastor, many of these people who were Christians for many, many years, they were like leaders, they were like people who had been in the church for decades. They had unconfessed sins, they had sins which they did not address. And just over time, these sins had taken a toll, and so many of them, and they'd all fallen out of the Christian race. I think as we look at this passage today, it's really a warning. It doesn't matter whether you are beginning the Christian life or you're nearing the end of your Christian life, but the challenge and the struggle is still the same. Will you finish well? Maybe you're feeling tired today. Maybe you're feeling, what's the point of going on and standing strong for Christ? Well, the answer here is very plain, isn't it? There are a whole multitude, millions of people looking down on you who have finished the race and they have gone through much worse hardship than you. You have the ability, if you choose together the Holy Spirit, to throw off everything that hinders and every sin that so entangles your life. I mean, if, it, if it's your Korean drama, yeah, you can, you can have a ceremonial burning or something if you want. You know, fix your eyes on Jesus. He is the one who has perfected your faith. He is the one who has brought you the faith. He will finish the race with you. And last of all, you need to know that the Christian race is not easy. It is hard, hard, hard but many people have gone through it and it is God's will for you to go through it. For your good, it says. For your holiness. For your eternity. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we pray that as we look at your word, we may truly heed its warning. And to see that the Christian race that you have marked out before us is one which is characterized by hardship, difficulty and persecution and and indeed the more we are faithful to you, the more the world will push back. But we pray that we will not be disheartened or discouraged, but that we will see that there are a multitude of, great multitude of people who have finished the race and they have faced even greater difficulty than we have and they have kept their faith and been rewarded for it. Help us to see that we need to throw off every hindrance that will burden us with excess weight, every sin that will entangle us, and that we may fix our eyes on Jesus and come to Him for power and strength to continue running our race. And we pray for each and every one of us to truly run well to the very end. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.